Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here again, coming your way as usual via the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Well, on the heels of Henry Kissinger's book on China, we now have Ezra Vogel's new biography of Deng Xiaoping. Pretty much all the reviews are good, and I spent a little time going over all his sources and who he had access to. In short, you could call this about as definitive a biography written by a Westerner as there ever was about Deng Xiaoping. I thought now would be as good a time as any here at the China History Podcast to look at the life of Deng Xiaoping. At 700-plus pages, I don't know how many of you will have the time to read Ezra Vogel's new book, so I had the idea to use Vogel's new biography as a sort of guide to look at Deng Xiaoping's life, and in looking at the life of Deng, we could also examine it in the context of the history of China at the time. He lived a very long life, chain-smoking, panda cigarettes and all, 1904 to 1997, not quite 93 years. Quite a lot went down in China during that time, and Deng played a central role from the very beginning up until the very end. Much of what you see today in China is a result of policies he put into place. Deng's achievements, what he did for China domestically and with China's international standing, is pretty clear and obvious. You don't have to peel away nauseating thick layers of propaganda. And Deng wasn't the Kim Jong-il or Hugo Chavez type either with all these acts of self-promotion. His record going back to the beginning always spoke for itself. He got the job done. He got things done using his intelligence, his leadership skills, commanding respect from others, and most of all, through the force of his will. He was a detail man as much as he was a big picture man. He was never the president of China or the official head of state. He was chairman of the Central Military Commission, which for all intents and purposes would make you the most powerful man in China. But... Deng, despite the titles he had, was the top man in China from the reopening up of the country in 1978 all the way up to his retirement in 1992. And then after that, particularly 1994, 1995, Deng sort of began to fade from the political stage. Today, in this first multi-part episode on Deng Xiaoping's life, I thought we might go up to 1937 which began the Yan'an years, and Deng's alliance with Liu Bocheng and the work they did fighting the Japanese in the Taihang Mountains. In this episode, let's look at where he came from, how he got the chance to study in France, what happened when he got there, and what happened after he got hounded out of there in early 1926. We'll look at all of that and also relive many of the periods in Chinese history that we've already looked at before in previous episodes. So, I'll try and keep everything within the context of what we already covered previously. As most people know, Deng Xiaoping was a Sichuan Ren, born in Sichuan Province on August 22, 1904. He came from the village of Paifang, located in the beautiful northeast of Sichuan, in Guang'an County. The Guangxu Emperor is still on the throne, the Empress Dowager Cixi is in charge, and China is back down on her knees, suffering from all the politically devastating after-effects of the Boxer Rebellion. The dynasty only has seven more years before the Wuchang Uprising delivers the final knockout punch in the House of Cards, 
that is all that remains of the Qing dynasty starts to fall apart. This is the world Deng Xiaoping was born into. But he wasn't too bad off. He was from modest circumstances, but by no means poor. I don't know if his father, Deng Wenming, could be considered a rich landowner, but he certainly owned land. In fact, uh, lucky for Deng, and therefore I guess lucky for China, he had a relative of some repute who had made good in the 18th century, making it up the ladder in the old civil service system. This Deng relative made it all the way to Beijing, and the village where Deng was born, Paifeng, was named after an arch that was built in honor of this illustrious 18th century Qing dynasty ancestor. Like most all people back in the towns and villages, if one of your own made it to the big time through the civil service exams, you made it with them. And if he failed, you know, so did the family who invested in this son. They would not reap any benefits from their sacrifices and investment. But thanks to this relative, Deng's family was okay, and his father made sure there were adequate funds to pay for an education that also might lead to some high government posting for his son. So, with uh, his good background and the legacy of this successful ancestor, young Deng Xiaoping, he was able to get into the good schools, and aside from the limited doors that were open to him, he was a very diligent student. Deng's years as a student coincided with the fall of the dynasty and the early years of the republic. In past episodes, we looked at those years before the fall of the Qing and the May 4th movement. In fact, on May 4th, 1919, when the whole event went down in Beijing, Deng Xiaoping was himself, as a 14-year-old studying in Chongqing, uh, in Sichuan, demonstrated as well and, was, and spoke out against the outrage of what happened at the Paris Peace Conference. So at the age of 14, young Deng Xiaoping becomes politically aware, and like it was with most of the other future communist leaders in China, it was the May 4th movement that provided the spark. Then, a simple twist of fate. Deng's father seizes on an opportunity to send his son to study in France, thanks to a fund that had been set up by some Sichuanese entrepreneur who had made a lot of money or something. So thanks to his father's diligence and connections, Deng Xiaoping was able to take part in this overseas work-study program. He attended a preparatory school in Chongqing, and then at the end of 1920, he's only 16 years old, he then leaves home in Sichuan and sails up the Yangtze, the Changjiang, to the mighty port city of Shanghai. And from there, he boards a vessel that takes him to Hong Kong, Vietnam, Singapore, Sri Lanka. And then on October 19th, 1920, he arrives at the port city of Marseille in France. His education had now begun in earnest. It began on the voyage over when he got to witness firsthand the various outrages and injustices at all the ports he visited. The teenage Deng Xiaoping got to see the seamy underside of imperialism up close, and it surely left a lasting impression. Well, the idea was, for this program Deng had signed up for, it was kind of a work-study program. With World War I raging in Europe, there was a shortage of men in France to work in the factories. So if you recall from a previous podcast, 
over a hundred thousand Chinese workers had all been shipped to Europe and during various times during uh, World War I, mostly to France, where they made a contribution to the war effort. Well, guess what? Deng Xiaoping couldn't have picked a worse time to go to France looking for work because now the war was over and all the French soldiers who managed not to get gassed and who survived the Great War, they went back home to France as, as a result. Who needed these Chinese laborers anymore? So all these jobs that the young Chinese students had counted on all dried up. The French economy was also not in good shape. Nonetheless, Deng worked the system and made his way to various schools, first in Paris, then Normandy. But then another setback. The rich Sichuan businessman, his benefactor back in the old country, he went bust or something, and those primary funds dried up quickly. And by early 1921, Deng, not quite 17 years old, and on his own in a faraway land, experiencing an economic crisis, no less, and Deng couldn't speak French yet, and in fact, he never quite learned how to do that, although he did acquire a taste for French wines and cheeses for the rest of his life. So anyway, he's there, he's on his own, things ain't going too good. Deng Xiaoping's whole French adventure was off to a very rocky start, and he wasn't alone. There were lots of these Chinese, many charity cases like Deng. They really faced hardship on multiple levels studying in France or trying to study. I mean, they were there to learn from the West and, in theory, soak up all that there was to learn and then go back to China, regurgitate all this knowledge and experience, and this would lift the country up off its knees. On a simple level, that was the impetus driving a lot of these young Chinese students like Deng, who were inspired by the events of the recent May 4th movement that had chosen this unconventional and very risky path in life. They came to these far-flung places like France to take it all in and bring all these experiences back to China. These Chinese who came to France, most famously Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping, they added a critical element to the newly formed CCP. Once they all got kicked out of Europe, they all made their way back to China, and they took all that sophistication, cosmopolitan living, and Western experiences and ideologies learned. And like sponges, they got to soak up everything that oozed out of the Soviet Union and into Europe. The Civil War was still raging in Russia. But where Bolshevism was concerned, France was a very well-positioned perch from which to study and learn how the whole thing worked. And these French returnees, as they became known, they all sort of stuck together, even though they were often apart and spread out amongst various cities. There was this informal network. So they all knew each other, knew of each other. and Many ended up working together as cells began to form. And the Bolshevik Revolution had only just happened. So these Chinese who ran in these circles in France, they got to study all of these ideas much closer to the center of gravity than their compatriots who remained in China, you know, like Chairman Mao. And many of these young Chinese in France, like Deng. They went on to important positions in the government in China. In 1922, some of the Chinese in France got together to form a kind of informal communist organization. Remember, in May 1921, the Communist Party of China had just been established and had just had their first party congress. 
which we covered in a previous podcast. So this communist organization in France reaches out to the new CCP in China, and they have this loose affiliation with each other. And this organization in France, by the way, is led by none other than Zhou Enlai. You could see how far back all these leaders go. Zhou was born in March of 1898, so he was not quite 23 years old when the CCP was formed. Mao was only 27, same age as Paul McCartney uh, when Abbey Road came out. Deng worked in various factories like all these Chinese trying to eke out an existence. Deng worked in factories making ordnance, paper flowers, and rubber overshoes, among other things. The idea all along was to still work in order to support their studies, but Deng didn't have too much luck in falling into any good educational opportunities. Well, all these guys like Deng, they all read Chen Du Xiu's New Youth magazine. We mentioned this before in a previous podcast. This journal, New Youth magazine, Xin Qingnian, it spoke to so many, and it sure spoke to Deng all the way out in France. All these Chinese in France, they all closely followed what was going on back home. New Youth Magazine was really a window into uh, what was going on in the movement and in China. By June of 1923, at this uh, communist organization in France, it's not a branch of the party. It's just sort of a, I don't know, a club in so many words. Deng starts to work in the office under Zhou Enlai, who ran the operation. The office put out this journal called Red Light, Chiguang, and as one of the more famous stories and legends about Deng Xiaoping goes, he was the one in the office appointed with the task of operating the mimeograph machine. And it was here, printing out these journals, where uh, Deng earned the famous moniker Dr. Mimeograph from his efficiency and industry in working this machine. Well, one could learn a lot hanging around the likes of Zhou Enlai. Deng received about as good an education as one could get in the arts of managing both strategic and practical everyday demands. By July 1924, Deng is now moving up in the world and makes his way to the executive committee of the Chinese Communist Youth League in Europe, which comes with an automatic membership in no less an organization than the CCP itself, the Zhongguo Gongchan Dang. So now... Deng is officially in the party. And as we all know, he made it all the way to the top. But in 1924, though, the CCP had maybe a 1,000 members, far from the 75, 80 million of today. Spring 1925, Deng is sent to the city of Lyon to head up a party cell there. And while he's there, the whole May 30th movement happens back in China. Remember that? May 30th, 1925, in Shanghai, the situation got out of control, and the British fire into the crowd, and one thing leads to another, and it's another international incident. And word and analysis reaches France, of course, and fuels the flames of radicalization as things look more and more desperate for China. Later, in November 1925, Deng gets a job at a Renault factory, and by this time he's an organizer extraordinaire, and he's doing all the right things to agitate and get management all over your case, and this was now going on all over. So one by one, and in groups, all these Chinese 
got deported, arrested, or they just fled altogether. At first, this creates a vacuum where Deng steps up to the plate and takes a more leadership role, but then he too. There's just too much heat. So Deng Xiaoping, he had to fly the coop also. January 7th, 1926, he escapes by train to the Soviet Union via Germany, and he arrives in Moscow 10 days later. Now, Deng, he's a high-profile member of this group of Chinese known as the French Returnees. The most prominent among them were, of course, Zhou Enlai and Deng, as well as Chen Yi, Nie Rongzhen, Li Fu Chun, and Li Wei Han. So Deng arrives in communist heaven, the center of the world, Moscow. It's January 1926, and Sun Yat-sen hasn't even been gone a year yet. Remember, it was Dr. Sun who had fought so hard for the United Front and cooperation between the communists and the Kuomintang, the KMT. So now, Sun Yat-sen is gone, and as we all remember, in a little over a year, we'll have the Shanghai Massacre, and then that's it for a while, as far as CCP-KMT cooperation. But when Deng Xiaoping arrived in Moscow, things hadn't fallen apart yet. The Soviets had established a Sun Yat-sen University in Moscow to train all their Chinese comrades and all the fine points of communist theory, organization, propaganda, you know, the whole communist thing from soup to nuts. Not only were communists trained there, but during the United Front period, KMT people as well. Jiang Kai-shek's son, Jiang Jingguo, he was also there studying in Moscow right alongside Deng. Well, it didn't take long before the Soviet handlers there figured out this little guy who stood five feet two inches tall was a real shining star. The Soviets saw Deng's leadership potential. He studied eight hours a day, six days a week, and was a model as far as party discipline went. So Deng received special handling in Moscow and was being groomed by the Comintern for good things. They sent him back to China in January 1927, the Christian warlord, Feng Yuxiang, had decided to throw in his lot with the communists, who were only too happy to get in good with somebody who had some real firepower. Deng gets back, and as soon as he starts to get things going with uh, Feng Yuxiang, the general decides to opt out, and then he abruptly changes sides and throws in his lot with the nationalists. Then shortly thereafter... April 1927, you have the Shanghai Massacre, and then that's it. It's the nationalists against the communists from there on out, with, of course, a brief period of cooperation after the Xi'an incident. Deng makes his way first to Wuhan, and then later to Shanghai, and works in the communist underground there. The, of course, the Shanghai Massacre had driven the whole movement underground. He's newly married to Zhang Xiyuan, his first wife, and they live next door to Zhou Enlai and his wife, the immortal... Deng Yingchao. These were tough times indeed for these committed communists who operated surreptitiously under the noses of Jiang's secret police. Deng Xiaoping on August 7th, 1927, attends a secret meeting held in Wuhan in response to the slaughter of communists that had recently happened in Guangzhou. Wuhan was where the Central Committee of the CCP was located. Wuhan, of course, one of the great revolutionary cities of China. At this meeting, Deng meets another man who will have a rather huge impact on his life. Here, he meets Mao Zedong for the first time. 
at this emergency meeting, Chu Chou Bai is named the new party secretary, and Chen Du Xiu, one of the party founders, was voted out. And after a two-year stint in Shanghai, working in the underground, and all the while carrying out party activities and organizing, Deng is sent to Guangxi province in 1929 to establish a communist base there. This was not as easy as it seemed. It required a huge effort and organization, diplomacy, leadership ability on a very, very large scale. In short, Deng failed in this endeavor. He was simply outmanned and outgunned by Chiang Kai-shek's forces, and in March of 1931, he had to leave his post with the 7th Red Army and skedaddled back to Shanghai to report to the party center on what was going on in Guangxi. This was an early defeat for Deng, and this came back to haunt him later on during the Cultural Revolution, where he was attacked for essentially abandoning his comrades in battle at their most desperate hour. Now, mind you, at this time, when he's leading his troops in battle against nationalist forces, he's only in his, you know, mid to late 20s. So the Guangxi period, although a fabulous learning experience for young Deng Xiaoping, he wasn't able to do what Mao Zedong had been successful in doing, that is, setting up a Soviet base within China that could sustain itself and thrive and, you know, effectively carry out activities against the enemy. Deng also lost his first wife during this period, along with his newborn infant. So after his uh, return to Shanghai, Deng is sent by the party center to the Jiangxi Soviet that Mao had set up in the Jinggangshan area. Deng remarries, and the newlywed couple sets themselves up in the area of the Jiangxi Soviet in Ruijin. There, Deng ends up as party secretary of this county, and he's immediately a big hit with the local populace with all his refreshing and practical policies. But just when things were starting to look up for Deng Xiaoping, his power and reputation was expanding outside of Ruijin, then suddenly there's one of those famous struggles that always seems to happen in these situations, and Deng is attacked in a meeting, and he goes on the defensive, and then his wife leaves him, and he's forced to do what everyone in his shoes had to do. He had to write the scathing self-criticism. But the silver lining in this particular incident is that Mao was under attack, too. I mean, the Zunyi meeting is still a ways to go yet, and Mao wasn't the Mao we all know. So he came under attack, too, but so did Deng, because he sided with Mao. And Mao remembered this and returned the favor one day. So Deng lays low in 1932-1933 until Li Fu Chun, one of his gang from the years in France, He's able to bring Deng back from the brink, and then he's back in business, working tirelessly in the propaganda department. But the Jiangxi Soviet was getting to be too successful for its own good. This was Mao's baby, and up until then, nothing the CCP ever did went as smooth as this did. It really put Mao Zedong on the map, and of course, Deng, you know, being party secretary in the most important city in the Jiangxi Soviet, which was Ruijin. These were formative years for him, too. But Jiang Kai-shek was determined to wipe these guys out. It was no secret where they were. Everyone knew their positions. And after four failed attempts, Jiang says, this time 
I'm really going to get him. And that's when the long march happens. Because Jiang came in this fifth campaign. He came at the communist forces in the Jiangxi Soviet with everything he had. It was a massive campaign. And the CCP leaders in October 1934 had to make that hard choice. Stay and get annihilated or flee and live to fight another day. Well... We all know the choice they made, and this, of course, turned out to be the famous Long March, the Changzheng. Something like 80,000 people left the safety and comfort of Jinggangshan and all areas of the Jiangxi Soviet. But 10%, maybe 8,000 in toto, is all that made it to the Promised Land. By the time this group finished all the exciting events of the Long March and made it to the area where Shanxi, Gansu, and Ningxia sort of all converge, 90% of them had perished. That's why to this day, to have been a Long Marcher really put you in a very, very exclusive club. Even if you were a nobody peasant from the poorest village, if you were a Long Marcher, Chinese society respected that. And today there's, you know, even occasional outrage amongst Chinese netizens every now and then when some news story gets out about some, you know, 80 or 90 year old long marcher who was you know, treated shabbily by the government or by society for whatever reason. The leaders of the long march, they became the aristocracy of the Communist Party. So let's not do a long march podcast. Let's look at what Deng Xiaoping did on the Long March, because he did it too. He was right there from beginning to end. He was there, and he was present at Zunyi in January 1935, officially taking notes, not having any decision-making authority, but Deng Xiaoping was present at the Zunyi conference where Mao Zedong walks away, if not officially, then unofficially, the most powerful guy in the Chinese Communist Party. It was goodbye, Bo Gu, Wang Ming, and the whole... 28 Bolsheviks faction, and hello, Mao. But bad luck, though, for Deng. He came down with typhus and was out of commission for a good portion of the journey. But he was still an established, up-and-coming elite in the party and an open Mao ally, which at this point was where you wanted to place your bets. Mao wasn't totally in control, but that's the way things were looking by the time the Long March ended, despite the huge losses suffered along the way. So Deng made it through the Long March, but Deng had mentioned in interviews later on that half the way he was sick and had to be transported on the back of a horse. Nonetheless, he was there and carried out all assignments given to him, mostly related to his role in the propaganda wing of the party. Deng hadn't yet established himself yet militarily. That was yet to come when he teamed up with Liu Bocheng later on. By the end of the Long March, there was no longer any question about who was in charge and who held the most power amongst the communists. Mao, loyally supported by his partner since 1931, Zhu De, was now the main guy. And his lifelong bond with Zhou Enlai is cemented in superglue on this two-year-long adventure lasting from October 1934 when they pulled out of Ruijin until October 22, 1936, the day the three armies all met up in Bao'an in Shanxi. Although Deng didn't rise to the mythological level of Zhou Enlai, because of their past going back to the early 20s in Paris and later after they had gone through 
you know, together in the Shanghai underground, Deng was very firmly tied together uh, to Zhou Enlai, and Deng's loyalty to Mao had been tested before. So he came out of this experience pretty good. Well, two months after the three armies, led by Mao, Zhang Guotao, and He Long, all arrive in the general area where Chinese civilization arguably began in Shanxi province, you had the Xi'an incident of December 22nd, 1936. And we'll cover that whole incident in another podcast. But essentially, Jiang Kai-shek is kidnapped and forced into another unholy alliance with the communists. Because Jiang and Mao were now obligated in so many ways to stop trying to annihilate each other's forces and focused their efforts instead on fighting the invading Japanese, the CCP caught a breather. And then they settled into Yan'an in January of 1937. And this begins the Yan'an period of the prehistory of the PRC and of the communist leadership. And we're going to conveniently stop here and pick up next time when Deng teams up with Liu Bocheng and they do their thing in and around Taihang Mountain. And Deng begins to further solidify his legend within the Communist Party. Before I go, I wanted to let y'alls know about a new book coming out shortly. I really got a lot of email about that episode on Robert Hart. Well, you'll be happy to know there is a new book coming out by Dr. Mary Tiffin, T-I-F-F-E-N. It's called Friends of Sir Robert Hart, Three Generations of Carol Women in China. The book, quote, brings to life the private and social lives of foreigners who committed themselves to work for the China Customs Service in the late 19th and early 20th century. The book is revealing about the personal anxieties, the financial worries, and the illnesses that blighted so many lives, but also the friendship, support, and empathy that was so frequently given and which gave an uncommon strength to the customs community. The book is a thoughtful and human evocation of this world, unquote. It's filled with photographs as well, and if you were interested to dig a little deeper in that world and part of Chinese and English Victorian history, be looking for that. Dr. Mary Tiffin. And that's it. I'm up in Berkeley, California now as I write this, but heading back to always wonderful Claremont, California. We're turning the clocks back, so that to me is officially the beginning of the cold months here, of winter. Anyway, this is Laszlo Montgomery wishing y'all the very best from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Join us next week where we'll pick up the story of the life of Deng Xiaoping starting around 1937. And if you thought it was interesting, trust me, it gets even better. So I hope you'll join us next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.